Today I'm joined by Ariana Rodriguez, one half of the dancing dietitians from Embody Health London, who specialise in treating chronic dieting and eating disorders. Ari joins us today to discuss their approach to eating disorder treatment, particularly their group approach to treatment, which provides a community for recovery. Hello, Ari. Hello, Anna. Lovely to have you to be with you. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, when you speak to someone loads and then, I mean, I think I say this at the start of like every single podcast, like, I feel like I've spoken to you so much, but then like now it's really nice to actually like see your face and put everything about you together. Likewise, likewise. You're right. I feel like we we're so connected on social media Mm -hmm. and then just having a real life conversation just brings it, you know, it's more dynamic. It's lovely. It's great. I'm excited. Definitely. But I think also, I mean, I wanted to talk about like to start because I think it's amazing your dancing that you do on Instagram. <laughs> I think I knew that you were going to be a really bubbly, lively person because you're dancing. Every time I see it, it just makes me smile so much. I think it's fantastic. Oh, thank you so, so much. You know, it's so interesting how we just fell into that. We thought, let's let's give it a go and hop onto these TikTok dancing trends and it just took <laughs> off and we have so much fun recording it. So we're so glad that it's been perceived as a positive way to share information mm-hmm. and it effectively effectively just became a brand in and of yeah. itself right <laughs> and and I think it's it's something that was really lacking and missing in the mental health space is is sharing information in an empowering way in a way that yeah. feels more relatable and fun rather than you know with that creating that white coat syndrome like you must mm. do this and do that so so it's uh it kind of just happened naturally and yeah we're so pleased and we have loads of fun so it's great <laughs> <laughs> little perk yeah I think it's amazing I think like you say rather it kind of takes that I think sometimes when there's a lot of information in a post that's maybe like an educational post or if it's you know trying to make someone feel better they can obviously sometimes feel a bit like blue or like post can feel a bit like negative whereas you know you two dancing it's just it's so good um <laughs> like you say I think it just like really lifts your mood and I'm so glad that it like took off for you and because because you know whenever I talk to anybody about you I always oh you know the dancing dietitians like it, it has become your trademark so it's really good really clear. I'm so glad it was just like sort of an accident for you rather yes. than like you know we set out that's it yeah that's it it just kind of happened so well thank you so much you're absolutely right I think social media can be quite daunting to to scroll through and there's so much information out there and it can feel quite heavy when when you're in a difficult place you're struggling quite isolated so so bringing shedding light to the fact that you know it's okay mental health just like physical health it, it it's it's you know fluid ever changing it's something that we can work on that we can um really empower and make change it doesn't have to be uh, a life sentence in a way right when we're given a diagnosis or whatever it is that we're living with and struggling with yeah absolutely and I guess you know what you've kind of just mentioned there I imagine that's sort of like the the ethos that you have um at Embody Health London and I wondered if you kind of you know, wanted to just give a bit of an overview as to as to what it is you guys do there. Absolutely. So we founded the Embody Health London Method. So we say EHL method for short. And really our approach to eating disorder recovery, as we are eating disorder and disordered eating specialist dietitians, we like to really say that we see our clients as whole beings rather than just about nutrition or the physical body, which may be an archaic and older modality that has been used in the past in in this field. Mm -hmm. So really our method encompasses three different cornerstones 
first is nourishment. The second is embodiment. And the third is mindset. So we're really weaving all of those three cornerstones together to achieve full recovery. And it is multidisciplinary in nature. So yes, we are registered dietitians, but we like to say we are more than dietitians because we've received so many different trainings in different therapeutic modalities through the years and through our work. And so we, we will use uh, modalities. I'll just kind of name a few just to give a sense of, of how we, we, we work because it is very different. We like to, to think <laughs> and what we know is out there. So we include things like acceptance and commitment therapy in our approach, um, receive training from Russ Harris himself, um, emotional freedom technique, which is a somatic you know, approach to building emotional resilience and has been demonstrated to, to be supportive of, of, you know, PTSD, stress reduction, anxiety, cravings as well. So, so many different modalities there in terms of emotional resilience, which is often a missing piece. We also look at DBT, so dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy enhanced, neuro-linguistic programming. And of course, we've been trained by uh, the intuitive eating founders, the framework founders, so Evelyn Tribuli and Elise Fresh. So we do come from the, the framework that we all can find our way back to becoming intuitive, which is that, that inherent capacity that we all have to be intuitive eaters um, and find peace with body and food. Um, and of course, then we incorporate mindfulness practices. So we really like to marry the science with the holistic together to really achieve full recovery. So we look at mindfulness, meditation, breath work, embodiment work, body image work as well in our methods. So it's a, it's a whole slew of, 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 of methods that are coming together. And based on what clients present with, we will walk them through um, a bespoke approach. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think it sounds amazing. You know, I was just thinking then as you're explaining it, um, you know, I, I understand the the reasonings for, you know, why you know, non-private eating just support is the way it is. And it doesn't have this massive array. But, you know, just as you were going through those different things, like each of them sound so important. And I think often, you know, we don't, I think we've spoken on the podcast before about, you know, embodiment and that sort of thing. And I think it's something that's, you know, like you said at the start, sometimes dietitians can just think nutrition, but actually it's that bigger picture. And I think, you know, the, the way that you guys do it is so promising for the future because you look at all aspects rather than just one specific thing that, yeah, it's great if you can sort that, but the other things need to kind of be untangled as well. Totally, totally. I, I totally agree. And that's at the end of the day, our food choices are not in isolation, right? They're not, we're not in a vacuum, just making food choices. It's there's so many elements that are feeding into that, right? Mm -hmm. No pun intended, but really there's so many elements there that, that we have to think about, you know, our social constructs, who's around us, our environment, you know, past learned behaviors, what we've been told, what we've seen, experienced, and all of those, you know, what we felt, that felt sense around a food or whatever it may be. So we must consider those when then looking at nutrition therapy. Yeah, definitely. I guess when you're working with a client, how how would you kind of determine what is the most necessary thing? Is it a case of kind of, you know, you'll talk to somebody and determine what to do first or and then see where to go? Or is it kind of a plan set out from the start? 
Yes. Yes. Good question. So with our individual clients, it's always going to be quite tailored to them. So we will always start with an initial consultation. We have to do an assessment before. So we actually understand what their needs are, you know, where the gaps are in perhaps their knowledge in their past, you know, what, what therapy they've received in the past. And and then we can kind of work with them to, to fill those gaps. Um, And really, yes, it's going to be quite tailored there. So Mm -hmm. All the modalities I've mentioned will be weaved in a very seamless way, in a way that feels right based on the client, what they present with at that session. Yeah. So it's never like planned knowing, okay, week one, we do this to this, that, 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 right. It's going to be very much client led and client centered in that sense. So we, we, we will, you know, our weekly coaching sessions are our personal favorites where we get to, to see our clients and ask them, okay, what went well, what was a bit more challenging. And then they actually lead it in that sense. Right. And then we're able to then go with, okay, let's troubleshoot. Let's see what, what, what can work instead. Let's try this. Um, and then we do prompts. So, so we get, we can do some digging deep work, you know, so, so, and then really guide them to, to where they need to be. Yeah. And that sounds amazing. I think it's so good that you sort of, you know, see what's going on, you know, when you see a client, because I think it would be very easy to kind of structure a plan and say, you know, this is what it's going to look like and this is how you'll get better. But actually, you know, I think in recovery, random things can pop up and it might be that, you know, something pops up that you need to work through in order to kind of engage in recovery. But if the plan doesn't, kind of let that happen then you know it's almost like there's no point in showing up absolutely and if we think about it when we're thinking about recovery we're moving away from the rigidity of an eating Mm. disorder right so we need to start building in that flexibility from from the get-go to really practice what we preach also, right? It's okay. So what happened this week? Oh, okay. So let's, let's change gears. Let's go this way. And we're able to go with the flow a bit more. And I think that that is a great example of how life is life works that way. And we need to start thinking and behaving in such a way as well. So moving away from rigidity and, and, and having, allowing for more flexible thinking is, is a big part of recovery as well. So we're, we're, we're kind of modeling that in a way. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are so many approaches out there that we, we, we use. I know I mentioned CBT ear earlier, which we've been trained in and we, we're aware of is a very rigid structure. Um, and of course, this may be really helpful for some people. And so we acknowledge that as well and the, the place that that has. Um, however, our, our approach will be just, you know, more flexible and inevitably. And we take some concepts from that, 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 that we know work. Um, so I think, it depends, you know, you mentioned private versus public and private setting. We have the luxury to do that, to be a bit more flexible and to be more tailored. Whereas in a public sector, there is a budget, there is, you know, a time frame. There are many clients in the wait list, so that may not be possible. So of course we acknowledge that as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that is an unfortunate kind of truth of the way that treatment is provided is like you say, there's a timeline and there is a budget. Um, but I equally don't think that that should mean that kind of people aren't accessing the treatment that they should have. Totally. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, you kind of the different modalities that you've mentioned, the one that stuck out to me that I don't think I'm fully aware of. Um, and I like to ask the questions because I don't want people sat at home thinking, I don't know what that means. And they've just. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, was I can't remember. I think that like three letter acronym for it would be ACT. Um, yes. ACT. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. So acceptance and commitment therapy. So really this was developed by, um, well, Dr. Russ Harris is one of the, the major contributors and he's actually based in Australia. Cassie herself received the training from him and it's, it's, it's a lovely modality. It's a form of psychotherapy. And really its aim is in order to, ch- to change behavior, we must first accept and acknowledge the purpose and the role that a behavior is serving us. Mm-hmm. And then we are able to assess our values and ensure we behave in accordance to our core values. So it's very much promoting value aligned behavior. We know when we act in discordance with our our values, that's when we find a bit of that resistance and we're not at peace and we're not finding that fulfillment in our life. So it's being able to, to move towards value aligned behavior. And that's in a nutshell, what we do. Um, but there's so many different, you know, techniques that we use within that. And one example is what we call unhooking from your thoughts. So, you know, cognitive diffusion is another word that we can use for unhooking, which is creating distance between your thoughts. So we start acknowledging and accepting, okay, I am having this thought and how is that influencing my behavior and how can I actually create distance from that thought? So I can then observe it as, oh, I see you and I'm choosing not to then engage with you. Right. So it's, it's being able to, to create distance and it basically empowers the client to, 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 to have choice. It's a, it's an effector of choice. Mm. That sounds like it would be such a useful thing. I'm just thinking about my personal recovery and a lot of the time, you know, it would feel almost as like I was making a choice, but didn't really know the intention behind the choice, but it just felt like it was right. But it was almost just felt like the natural thing to do but actually I think being if you were able to take a step back and think why am I doing this right now what's the long-term impact gonna have with this and you know how does this align with my values as well I think yeah that that sounds like it would be very useful it's helpful isn't it for me too (laughs) I think everyone needs training in this right yeah everyone needs to consider their values I think it's that's how you 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 lead a fulfilling enriching enriching life Mm. I think it's often something we forget about is kind of like looking at the here and now rather than the mm-hmm. picture um I was actually I I was reading the brain earlier I don't know who it's by I probably should but uh it, it's a book that I was reading on audible and it was saying that a lot of the time our brain is very much for the short term not the long term mm-hmm. um and it was talking more about kind of you know things like um drug abuse or alcohol misuse and stuff like that but I guess when I was doing re- listening to it I did think about eating disorders and that a lot of the behaviors maybe you know compulsive exercise in the moment that feels like the right thing to do to relieve the anxiety but actually in the long term you're not helping yourself by still engaging in those behaviors so totally a little tangent but totally but it's absolutely (laughs) true right it's that threat that that fight flight you know Mm -hmm. freeze response it's immediate the brain likes to have that immediate comfort it's like oh this is what I need now you know so it's, it's the path of least resistance yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess now we're on the subject. If someone, <laughs> if somebody was kind of, you know, struggling with that sort of thing in terms of, you know, going for the here and now and, and not the kind of, you know, thinking about the future, what would be like your tips for, for navigating that sort of uh, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, often, so if we think back to that fight, fight, 
fight, flight, freeze response. My gosh, it's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> too many Fs. <laughs> but of course, if we think and refer back to that, as I just mentioned, it really brings into play the nervous system, right? And when we are in that state of immediate impulse go, it's often coming from a place of where the sympathetic nervous system is activated. And this is the part of the nervous system that is going to respond to any threat in our potential environment, maybe a thought then is a perceived threat, right? So, so many um, different factors and elements can be perceived as such, and it activates this nervous system and makes us feel um, as though we need to either flee the situation, fight this off the situation, or sometimes we just freeze and kind of actually, um, we can just fawn, really collapse effectively. So um, this is where embodiment work is so important, one of our cornerstones in our method. And this is where we think about resourcing the body. And when we resource the body, we're actually able to then soothe the nervous system in a more immediate, effective way. Rather than thinking our way, thinking, 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 it's often, you know, coming back to the body can be one of the quickest ways to actually relieve and soothe the nervous system, downregulate to then start activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is contrary to sympathetic, is going to, you're going to be more at ease. This is the associated with the rest digest. This is when we're more likely to actually be able to problem solve, right? So when we think of the brain, we're going to kind of get nerdy here, but when we think of the <laughs> brain, when the nervous system is soothed and we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, this is when the prefrontal cortex, right? That cortex, which is that higher brain function can then actually be online. And only when this is online, can we actually troubleshoot, problem solve, think critically, think long-term rather than in the short-term immediate, you know, pleasure response, right. Or safety response. So really in essence, in order to really get that prefrontal cortex online, we have to soothe the nervous system. And this is where we can start using the body to downregulate. So a really great tip would be breath right? It seems so primal, so primitive, like, oh, trivial. Why do I care about my breath? But really that is, you know, we have this nerve that innervates many of our, our organs in our, in our, in our body, including the lungs. It's called the vagus nerve. And this is actually going to be accessible through our breath. We can actually quickly start stimulating the vagus nerve to then down regulate that sympathetic nervous system. Um, so breath work, maybe take some deep breaths, taking a nice inhale through your nose for five counts, holding five counts, exhaling five counts. So what we call triangular breathing can be helpful. And then doing that at least five times, I would say five rounds, that could be a really beautiful grounding opportunity to then think, okay, hmm, I'm in my body. Okay. Out of my head into my body. Now what? And we can start perhaps being more resourceful that way. Another great way could be grounding through our senses. Any senses are a fantastic way to get back into the felt body. And so that can be looking out the window, looking at nature, looking at a flower, if you have a fresh flower or plant and just focusing on it and just breathing whilst focusing. Maybe it means the felt sense of walking on the ground and just noticing you know, what it feels like to be walking. Maybe it means giving yourself a hug or even if that's too much, because for some, depending on where we are, that can be quite a lot. So it could just be like rubbing your arm. Um, it could be even just putting a hand to the heart and breathing. And 
Um, and then aromatherapy is also really helpful, right? So thinking, okay, I want to start thinking, I want to find myself in this present moment. Can I have a little lavender roll on at my disposable at all times? And maybe put that in, take a few deep breaths, inhaling that to soothe the nervous system that way. So, so many different ways, but really what I would like to say is tuning into your five senses and find what works best for you. Cause we all have our own little, little ways and what works mm -hmm. best for us. So play around with it. And, and that will allow you to find yourself in that present moment to then be able to then think, okay, now what, what is it that I actually need? You know, how can I honor that? Yeah, definitely. I don't know if this was meant to have the impact, but just talking about it made me feel calmer. I think, mm. you know, if I come onto a podcast and I've not done one for quite a few weeks. So I was kind of feeling a bit nervous and I was, felt a bit giddy. I yeah. Feel like I've calmed just listening to you go through that. So thank you. Let's do some breath work together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you should do that before a podcast. Exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. T totally recommend. <laughs> I just get so excited when someone comes on the screen and then I start chatting and, yes. and then I'm like, I probably should just say to them, like, should we just do some breathing before we start? Totally. Oh my gosh. Let me know if you end up doing that. I totally yeah. recommend it. I, I will. We I actually do that in our support groups. Before every mm -hmm. support group, we will do a check in. We call it a tune in. And we do some deep breathing, guided visualization, meditation to get everyone's nervous system soothed down so they can be present and then ready to engage yeah. and then be their best self there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea because I think often, um, you know, when you do come into therapy, whether it's in a group setting or just individual, often you can be carrying so much and it can be so distracting. So I think, you know, just to have those few seconds or minutes or whatever to just come in and think about where you are now. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, and talking of your support groups, um, I really wanted to talk to you today about the, the kind of group work that you do, um, because I think it's, I guess, I don't think it's ever so common on the NHS I think for binge eating disorder it is um but I've heard like really positive things about it in terms of eating disorders so I guess I wanted to learn more about that your approach at EHL. Totally. yes thank you absolutely it is quite common I I do recall in hospital uh, when I was working in the hospital that mm. was quite common is group group work whether it be art art therapy and sessions mm. or I would I would lead workshops and such so it's quite it's quite um prevalence and I know our dietitians our team also in their past experiences they've done led a quite a lot of, of group work and I think it's so powerful so in terms of the research I will just touch on the research quickly around support groups and eating disorders there isn't very much I will be honest yeah. so we did a lot of digging because of course we love to take on you know have an evidence-based practice so it's something that we, we, it's quite difficult to find in this population, particularly. However, we, we do know anecdotally in the lived experience, and we know the power of community in, in all senses. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all human and we thrive on connection. So that is really where the support groups that that inspiration came from. Now, in terms of our support groups and how they run typically, so they are 
they were weekly, they're now fortnightly. So they're fortnightly supports where people come in from all over the world. It's incredible. They're all on different parts of their journeys. And we share, we share experience of lived experiences. And we may ask questions and Cassie and I, or our, um, a member of our team will be able to facilitate the group and, and make sure, you know, everyone's safe, feel, feeling held, prompting any questions or conversations should they need giving resources and teaching as well should that be relevant in that that place but really I think the power of community really shines when people feel heard they feel a deep sense of belonging because when we think of eating disorders it is extremely isolating and even though we know other people may struggle with them in theory, it still feels really isolating. And it still feels like this is just my problem. Why me? This is, you know, why, why do I dislike this body or why am I struggling? Why do I have to, you know, do this in the day and face my fear foods, whatever it is, recovery is really hard. Right. And so, so that's why we've created this space where it's non-judgmental. You're able to share experiences. You realize, Hey, I'm actually not alone. Yeah. Okay. It's, these feelings are valid. Yeah, this is really hard. And then it's beautiful to see how people actually can extend compassion to others, right? I think we have that innate capacity to be compassionate when we see someone is struggling. And then there's power in flagging that and saying, huh, look at that. Now, what if you were to bring that back to yourself as well, mm-hmm. right? So there's an opportunity for learning in so many different ways in a group that is so beautiful to witness. Yeah. I was just thinking that as you were saying um, about the the kind of group approaches that I can imagine one thing that's so powerful is, you know, being caring and supportive towards somebody else and then kind of turning that back around and thinking, how can I, because it's so much harder to do that for yourself. But if you can kind of, you know, see someone else struggling with a similar thing to you and you can kind of, you know, support them and guide them. I think that would be really like reflective back on yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing is we always ask and, and some of our, our, our participants will always say like, it's so easy for me to say this, but you know, it's harder for me to actually apply it. And then that's when we say, okay, yeah, yeah, totally. Where you, like you said, I think it's so, it's just human nature, isn't it? We're our worst inner critic. And so it's, we, we can kind of set tasks and we're like, okay, so what can you do this week? Right. To, to bring that back to yourself. And so it's, it's meant to be a space where we share, but equally, we hope that they take away every time something that they can kind of work on and, and, and apply to their day to day as well. And I suppose that's the thing, I guess, that you've just said there is, I think often, you know, going to individual therapy is, you know, really good. Um, but I think there's also a lot that you can learn from other people experiencing a similar thing to you and maybe things that, you know, a, a therapist or a dietitian or whoever's leading the group could probably, you know, suggest. Um, but I've led group therapy before and I remember a distinct time where I was kind of talking about something and, you know, suggesting something. And then one of the participants in the group was kind of you know like oh yeah I did that and explained their situation and there was so much more engagement when they said it and at the time I was like I just said that and then I was like oh no I get it it's because they've actually have got experience of doing it and they're telling them how it worked and they've got that connection that's it it's like living proof right Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like okay the research says but it's so much more meaningful sometimes when you just say 
I actually did it and it worked <laughs> or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, or I, I totally hear you. Yeah. That's, you know, what if you tried this and it comes from someone who's tried and tested a few different things. So totally. I, I agree. And I, I, that's something that I love to witness as well mm. is, is how people come together to, to support one another. Yeah. And it's, it's lovely because then actually I think with eating disorders as well, and in, in this, in, you know, when we, our, my experience in, in working with, with individuals struggling with eating disorders is um, this sense of it's, it's only me mm. and I'm, you know, no one, I think people, maybe they recover, but I can't recover, right? It's, it's like, yes, recovery is possible, but for everyone else, but not me, mm. right? And so hearing it from, from when you're actually in the virtual room or room wherever you are really listening to to these stories you can actually say actually it sounds quite similar hmm yeah okay and that can kind of perhaps help with that that motivation and that that hope as well which is so so important yeah definitely I mean I guess not to put a downer on it but do you think it's quite common that Oh, I guess, has it ever happened that, you know, people might see, I guess, if everyone's at different stages of recovery in the group, um, I guess, you know, in eating disorders, unfortunately, there is a, a big thing to compare. So totally. is there sort of that thing of, oh, well, you know, they've gotten better, but I can't or kind of, you know, maybe being triggered by each other or do you have like ground rules when you start the absolutely must 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 have yes absolutely so we do of course have people from different stages of recovery mm. however we do have t's and c's you know terms and conditions at the very beginning so in order to participate in the support group you know someone individuals cannot be um they have to be clinically stable, right? In terms of physically, um, mentally have received so much support before doing so. Um, and the only reason is, is for the safety of everyone in, in the room, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I think it could be quite, quite elicit quite a lot of different emotions or thought patterns and, and you know, for lack of a better word, triggers. So, so absolutely, we do try to, to, manage that um but inevitably that may happen that may absolutely happen so we do set ground rules in terms of the language that we use that we can and, and ideally do not use um how we share stories um and at the end of the day we do a check-in and one before we leave and a check-in with how is everyone feeling right how's everyone doing after these experiences have been shared so we can just make sure we can you know iron out any kinks that may may be there and how to cope with it if it does in fact trigger someone yeah and I think that's such an important thing of actually learning how to cope because obviously I'm not saying that anybody should intentionally say something that they know is gonna you know offend somebody else or you know put somebody else in a difficult situation but actually I think one really important thing that sometimes I think people don't give their all to in recovery is being in those situations that are difficult that are uncomfortable and that make you think oh gosh I wish the world would just completely like bury me up inside and I just want to disappear from the situation because they are unfortunately going to happen you're going to be in a coffee shop and hear somebody say something about how much they've exercised and how much they've eaten and silly things like that and I think also you can't ask everybody to not have those conversations so I think that's such an important thing to be like you know that really did affect me but this is how I'm going to work through it so that it doesn't affect me next time. 
Absolutely. That's a key part to recovery. Yeah. Absolutely. You're right. We don't leave, live in a vacuum, right? It's this, <laughs> this world. And unfortunately, diet culture is pervasive. So there's a lot of language that is unhelpful, deconstructive. And so being able to distance ourselves from that and, and cognitively, um, physically always really just create that distance as we were mentioning before is, okay, I've observed this, this, you know, how am I choosing to, am I choosing to internalize this or not? And actually, if I do feel such a way, okay, I honor that feeling. I acknowledge it. It makes sense that I feel this way because of X, Y, Z. Okay. What can I do next? What can I do for myself? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think being able to have those reflections as well. And I guess it almost goes back to what we were saying before about sometimes you might have that like impulsive thought of, you know, what's going on, but actually being able to take a step back and reflect on the situation um, mm. is so important. Um, and as we were kind of just talking about, um, you know, different kind of behaviors, I guess, I kind of I, I wrote these questions ages ago, but there must be a reason why I wrote this question and I want to ask it because I want to know your opinion on it. And I yes. was browsing <laughs> through your website, so there must have been something. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to ask, I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about people saying, oh, they can recover, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wondered if, you know, if you thought, is there like a point of no return where someone can't recover? Um, you know, maybe if they've been practicing in chronic diet patterns for years and years and do you think this point or do you think that kind of everybody has that opportunity it's kind of just how much they want to get involved yes I think that's a really important question because it is one that I think if we've been on the journey for quite some time it can feel quite disheartening and and, and hopeless for, for in essence um, at the end of the day we, I like to say that recovery is indeed possible for every single person, it really comes down to the readiness, readiness to change. And so we've actually worked with extremely complex clients and complex meaning they just have a very, you know, diverse background, perhaps, you know, various different lived traumas, big T traumas, right. And, and, and points where many clinicians in the past have told them, oh my gosh, like there's no hope. Right. And I know it's my jaw drops when, when I, I hear this, sometimes when I hear clients come to us and say, no, no one can help me. I've tried this many dietitians. I've this, tried this many therapists and I've tried this, da, da, da. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, that is, no one should ever hear that, right? Because you're human. You are not broken. The reason why you're experiencing and, and, and going through this is, is there, there's a reason and it can actually, just like it has been created, it can be deconstructed as well. And so doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but of course there is a way. And if, if a person is ready, then in fact, yes, I like to say recovery is possible for every single person who is ready to do that. Um, in order to determine readiness to change, just so, so for any folks listening, it's really, there's two different parts. It's a, how important this change is to you. And the second B would be the confidence in your ability to make this change. Okay. So self-efficacy is what we call it. And so when we look at those two things, and typically when we do an assessment initially, we will ask those questions on a scale of one to 10, one being the very least, 10 being the greatest, how important is this to you? Right. And sometimes, you know, actually often, most times we will do a visualization exercise. What is it that you're going to get from this? Right. What is it that we're working towards? Why is this important to you? And then the second part is, of course, how how what's how confident are you 
typically that may be a bit lower because mm-hmm. if we've gone through many different therapists or, or dietitians or whatever it is that have lost hope, then, then naturally that will be a bit lower. But I think with a few sessions with, with seeing progress and baby steps and being able to celebrate even the smallest wins that can then start building that sense of hope again so that you can build momentum. So yes, in essence, the full recovery <laughs> is possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, I'm, I'm glad that you said that. I think it, I think it would have been a bit of a... Yeah, awkward. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I think, yeah, it sounds... I think you're right. Um, I've always been of that opinion in that I think recovery is possible. But like you said, it, I, I don't... I don't like to say that eating disorders are a choice, but I do think that recovery is a choice and it's almost, to me, it's a choice that you can, you can almost decide on how far you go with it as well. And, you know, you can exist in a state of quasi recovery and, you know, guess if that's where you want to be, then that's where you are. Um, But absolutely. I think, you know, there's that full potential for everybody. Like you say, it's just about the readiness. Um, And I think often that is why people are told that there is, you know, there's no hope or whatever horrible thing they're going to be told. And I think it's often because they're, they're not ready and they're not supported to be ready. Um, Which I think that's often the reason, not that the actual person, you know, has no possibility that's it have they been given the tools that they need in order to achieve that and you know again I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to the private versus public in some cases it's really unfortunate because you're absolutely right this needs to be available for everybody every single person needs to have this access to these services but ultimately the reason why we have so many different modalities is because we need all of that in order to, to really move forward at the end of the day, it's not just about CBT, the only way let's do it. 20 sessions. Boom. If you're not recovered, Oh, well too bad. Right. That's not, we're not robots. We're so complex. We live in an environment. If we're, you know, we can even see with some of our clients when they visit, you know, ex family member, they behave in such a way. And then when they go back home, it's so different, right? It's, it's incredible that, we need to be considering all of these factors. It's not just let's go through these and tick these boxes off. You've done your sessions and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when we think of, if someone hears that, you know, there's no hope, it's perhaps only using that modality is not working for you, mm-hmm. but we haven't yet considered the multidisciplinary approach perhaps. And then another point on that is when someone is often discharged, if in the case of anorexia nervosa in particular, that's often when, you know, the services that do exist are often for anorexia and being inpatient, for example, when discharged, even if they are, you know, if an individual is weight restored, they're not then given the skills to then now what, right? Okay. I'm weight restored, quote unquote, recovered according to the system, but my cognitions are still there. I'm still struggling inside. And so the tools in order to move that individual from, okay, you're in this body, Now, actually, how can we make empowered choices around food, right? How can we actually disentangle these food beliefs? Where do they come from? All of that has to happen. And there's lack of resources to be able to do that, that work thereafter, right? So then we're at greater risk of then relapse because we haven't addressed what's actually that final step, that final missing piece. Yeah. So, so, so of course there is absolutely hope. It's really just making sure we, we look at the bigger picture. Yeah. 
I think another thing came to my mind, you know, when you were talking about kind of the food beliefs and stuff, one thing that I think is absolutely not even thought about, and I may be wrong, but, you know, that's, I'm just going to put that out there, is just the identity of the person, you know, an eating disorder is so encapsulating, you know, especially if, you know, if we're still going on um, kind of thinking about somebody that might have been engaged in those behaviours for years, they're probably going to have, you know, there's a reason why it stayed around for so long. It's probably a massive part of them to then just say to somebody, okay, so like you said, in the case of anorexia, you've gained a bit of weight, you're, you're okay now. Well, you know, what, what, who am I now? What, what, what am I, you know, what do I do in my spare time, all of that thing, because eating disorders take over everything. And I just don't think that, you know treatment even even approaches that subject totally such an important such a huge part of recovery <laughs> isn't it it's like who am I without mm. without this entity you know I it's it's a really important thing to explore which we actually have we are delighted we have a workshop on that in our thrive program actually and because it's it's so important to start considering what are the other possibilities and I love that word possibility is exploring what else could we potentially do? Okay. What, what can we be curious with ourselves and start moving away from, from, from our eating disorder being that sole thing. And it's a really scary thing and place to be because it, it does serve a purpose. There's a function and, and oftentimes it can be for some, it can feel like the only friend, right? It's like, it gets me, it's protecting me. I feel safe here. And so asking someone to step away from that is, is a really, really big deal. Yeah. And I do often think it is something that should be supervised. I think a lot of people, um, you know, when they are in recovery from an eating disorder, do fall into the trap of either, you know, going into another eating disorder or developing another behavior that's actually, you know, just as negative, um, but it might be one that is maybe seen as a more healthy behavior in society um, or it might not be, but I think often that's something that should be supervised and it's, it's just not, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have a couple of questions from the listeners for you. Um, It was mainly about group treatment um, Mm -hmm. because I thought, why not? That's a, a great topic to go for. Um, so the, I guess we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, I want to ask a question anyway, because it might not have been exactly what I asked. Um, so the question is, in group therapy, do you have to be mindful of triggers, e.g. how much you exercise, how much you eat, because you're in a group? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. It will, I guess it will depend on which groups you're, you're attending and I guess their ground rules, but I would say, see it as a community, right? Uh, the answer in short is yes, we need to be mindful of all the other participants. It's not to say don't share. Uh, absolutely. And, and it's important to share your experience. In our group specifically, we are just mindful of talking about numbers, numerical values, that's where the comparison can really be, be, you know, elicit a really strong feeling or a trigger. So we move away from actual measures, but if there are behaviors, of course, you know, you can say I'm struggling with this behavior. And oftentimes when someone shares that, we'll say, 
can anyone else put their hand up? Like, does anyone else relate to that? And oftentimes we'll see many hands go up and that's, that's, that's the power of community is wow. Yeah. Okay. That's really hard. Okay. Let's talk about that and let's dive into it. So yes, it's, it's important to talk about the behaviors because that's what we're there for. And to, to actually share and talk about, it's really just how we express it. Is it, you know, talking about how many hours we're doing and, you know, how much time we dedicate, maybe not, maybe that would be more for an individual, uh, session, shall we say in that sense. I think you're completely right. And I think that's kind of the attitude that we take on the podcast as well is, you know, if we weren't going to talk about any eating disorder behaviors or any mental health condition ever, this podcast probably would be not, not the greatest. Wouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, talking about specific numbers and, and things like that. I think you know you you can have those conversations you can share how you're feeling without having to be deadly specific about things um and like you say keeping that to individual spaces if you think I mean I guess this is just my personal opinion but often I think that actually not being super specific about things can be a really good kind of thing in recovery because you're almost by not giving those specific numbers or whatever you're almost wanting somebody's response like oh god that's loads or you know whatever but not having that you're kind of not getting that response so you're not getting I can't really think about validation you're not validating the eating disorder right absolutely you're absolutely right that's a huge component and yeah great way to put it it's it's because the eating disorder is like oh look what I did right Mm -hmm. it's this this sense of um yeah there's a pride perhaps that comes with that and it's trying to move away from yeah, that doesn't matter. Actually, at the end of the day, the behavior is the behavior. So let's, let's work on that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and then the other question, um, I don't know whether you do in person, but the question was, how does group therapy differ online versus in person is one shown to be more effective than the other? Mm, great question. So at Embody Health London, we do not do in person. I mean, we do corporate workshops, but not group therapy. So slightly different. Um, however, we have, of course, done it as, as, as dietitians working in, in, in the NHS and CAMS and, and such environments, we have provided in person groups, of course. Now, in terms of the research, which was quite interesting because with the advent of COVID and the, the, the pandemic, we've had to switch over quite a bit across the world in the mental health space as well to make this service available. Most people and, and um, organizations have had to move on to virtual support. And so with that means that we are able to do a lot of research on this, on this, um, this question exactly. And so we actually find that interpersonal connection through the virtual space can be as effective actually as in person, which is super exciting for us because we see it, of course, we, we witness this in, in our clients, but it's nice to see that in the form of research. So, yeah, I guess it's really in terms of preference, it comes down to preference for, for an individual. Do they want to be in person? What, what value do they think it'll bring? Um, for others, it can be on the contrary, actually being online can feel safer, being in their home, in their environment, um, having a bit of that distance, but still being able to share that can, can create a bit more of that sense of felt safety. And therefore, they can then share perhaps um, their experiences in a more open way. So it's really going to be unique to every single participant. Yeah, I think COVID, we have a lot to thank 
for you know just simple things like this like you're currently in Canada I'm currently in Cambridge <laughs> that you know how great is this logistics <laughs> yeah. this would not have really happened um, that's right but you know every single podcast I think how I done in a live podcast I don't think I've done one maybe one actually um <laughs> but you know just things that before seemed impossible to do online um you know whether you think about silly things like transport you know you're saving time you might have to travel an hour there an hour back exactly whereas you can <laughs> you're just... more likely to say oh never mind I won't go this week yeah. because I, I just can't be bothered right too tired. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and also I think you know whatever you discuss in the session or whatever actually being able to practice that in your home or you know share that in your home like you said before you go out and you know practice it elsewhere I think can be you know really comforting to do that and then kind of be a stepped approach um so I think they both I think they yeah. both have things to offer but yeah that's it that's absolutely yeah. it preference preference is the answer really <laughs> but they are both equally effective which is great yeah absolutely well thank you so much it has been so lovely to talk to you um especially like I love it when someone's across the globe I'm like this is just crazy yeah. <laughs> isn't it great I mean normally I am in London but but that of course true. yes <laughs> uh, you caught me here back home in Canada um it's been an absolute pleasure Hannah so thank you so much for having me thank you and have yeah. a nice time with your family Thank and you. I hope to see baby <laughs> pictures of your cousin. Oh, yes, you will. You will. I'll, I'll send updates. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.